0: Mark chapter number 8, and if you were here on Sunday night, we preached about the feeding of the 7,000, or excuse me, of the 4,000, feeding of the 4,000, not the feeding of the 5,000, but the feeding of the 4,000. And here in Mark chapter number 8, we have an interaction that happens with our Lord and his disciples and some Pharisees uh, that immediately hearkens back and and brings to memory that miracle and asks an important question, I think, for all of our lives. Mark chapter number 8. Let's begin reading at verse number 10. Mark chapter 8, verse number 10. The Word of God says, In straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now, the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said seven. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the word of God, Lord. Thank you that it's true and that as we approach your word tonight, we're not approaching the words of men or the ideas of men, but we're approaching the very words of God. I pray that we treat it with the reverence it deserves and treat you with the love and reverence and adoration that you deserve. Lord, I pray for these requests that have been given. And of course, memory would fail me to recount them all. Lord, I'm just so thankful that you don't you don't let a single one of them fall to the ground. Lord, you know every one of them. And Lord, they're as fresh in your mind as they were when they came from the hearts and pins of those that pinned them down. Lord, I pray that you would take these requests and answer them according to thy will. And I pray that you'd help us tonight, Lord, as we gather around your word to allow you to do an eternal work in us. We need you, Lord. We desperately need you. On a Wednesday night, we need you. Here in September, Lord, we need you. We need you to work in our hearts and lives. So we commit these next few moments to your care, trusting you to do something great with them. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Here in Mark chapter number 8 the disciples have a bit of a chagrined moment, kind of like the preacher that don't have a gospel track at the office supply store, where the Lord puts them on the spot and asks them a very searching and important question. He says in verse number 17, Have ye your heart yet hard? In other words, he asks them, Do you have a hard heart towards me and towards the things that I am doing and how I am working In your life. It's interesting when you think about hard heartedness. Now I think most of us would have people in our life. That we would point to. If I asked you to name somebody. That you think has a a hardened heart. There's probably people that you could look to. And people you could name and say. Oh yeah preacher. Their heart is hard towards the word of God. But you stop and think about the disciples in this moment. They're not angry. They're not defiant. They don't seem to be living in open rebellion. So why then does Christ describe their heart as being hard towards them? I thought about what a hard heart is. I would say one example, most of us would probably agree with this, is a hard heart is an impenetrable heart. You know, the book of Zechariah talks about Israel at a time in their history. And he says, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. I'll tell you this, the moment that God, we don't allow him to speak to us anymore, our heart has grown hard towards him. When all of a sudden, when the Word of God begins to speak to our heart and begins to speak to our life, and we stove up and we bow up and we get angry at God and we get angry at those that are declaring the Word of God, that is a sure symptom that our heart is not in a right condition. And I'll tell you this, how could God ever help you if you want to allow Him to speak to your heart? There are people that spend decades in Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches that are drying up on the vine and never gaining any spiritual nourishment from the Word of God as it's preached because they won't allow it to enter into their heart. You have to allow the Word of God to enter your heart for it to enter your heart. I know we oftentimes think about testimonies of people who in the hardness of their sin, God broke their heart. And we point to it and say, well, see, preacher, God can break through a hard heart. That's true. But, you know, even in them, there had to be a willingness to acknowledge what was broken in their life. And if you're unwilling to let God speak to your heart, I promise you, he will not speak to your heart. There's been times I've sat in preaching services and literally and I understand that the word of uh, or that the spirit of God doesn't necessarily move in in geographical lines or boundaries but it was almost like you could see the spirit of God move in a service. And then you can often it's been me but I've seen it in others where there's someone that refuses to allow the spirit of God to touch their heart. What's going on there? Well, their heart has been hardened towards the truth of God. I would say an impenetrable heart is a hard heart. But then I would say this, there's such a thing as an immovable heart. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalms chapter number 10, verse 4. He says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. In other words, it's possible for a person who will listen to the word of God to respond by refusing to submit to the word of God. We see this all the time. I'm getting ready. I'm on the cusp of raising teenagers. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm within, within striking distance of, of my oldest being a teenager. And even already, and he's a wonderful boy and we thank God for him. But even now, we can sense in him a resistance that wasn't there four or five years ago. You say, preacher, what is that? Well, sadly, they grow up and kind of become miserable people for a little while. Amen. And, <laughs> but you know, it's no different in your life or in my life. We do the same thing to God. I'm reminded of a man in the book of Acts who heard the word of God. He trembled at the word of God. He said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. His heart was not impenetrable. God penetrated his heart, but his heart was immovable. I will tell you, listen, it's not enough just to cry when the Word of God moves your heart or stirs your heart. It's not enough just to just to shake or just to tremble when the Word... It's not enough just to have a, a physical or emotional reaction when the Word of God is dealing with you. We must yield ourselves to the truth of God's Word if we want God to do a work in us. So I would say an impenetrable heart is a hard heart. I would say an immovable heart is a hard heart. But in verse 17, Christ describes the symptoms of the hardness of their heart. He says, why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hard?" So I would say this, an impenetrable, an immovable heart, but I would say an imperceptible heart is a symptom of a hard heart. You ever met someone in life that just didn't get it? (laughs) everywhere they went and everything they did, they walked in utter blissful obliviousness as to the actions that they were carrying out. You know, can I say that spiritually in our lives, we can't claim ignorance. We've been blessed with too much light. And it don't matter if we try to pretend as though we're too ignorant to understand what God expects of our life. There's not a one of us that's saved by the grace of God that is without excuse. We all have within us the agency or the agent of illumination, the spirit of God, the agent of revelation, the one that can speak and apply the truth of God to us through the witness of the word of God. Every single one of us has the means to hear and understand what God expects out of our life. And I will tell you that selective hearing is hard heartedness. Just as surely as rebellion, just as surely as stubbornness, just as surely as blindness, an unwillingness to learn from the truth of the word of God is hard heartedness. And in this passage, we find a group of men. They're not angry at Christ. They're not openly defiant of him. But they, having been shown through this miracle, some truths about the Lord, have refused to take the truth of it and they are missing the point. I'm going to preach to you on that thought tonight. And I've got just three things to say and then I'll be done. Are we missing the point in our life? Is God working in your life and in mine and seeking to cultivate in us a spirituality and a consecration and a commitment to him? But all the while that God's doing incredible things in our life, we're missing the point of it all. I tell you, there's never been a bill that he's paid that the point was the paying of the bill. There's never been a disease that he's healed, that the point was the healing of the disease. There's never been a miracle that he's wrought that the purpose was a miracle just for a miracle's sake. Even all through our Lord's earthly ministry, we find over and over again, spiritual import to the things that he did in people's lives. He didn't raise the dead just because he wanted to beat death out of somebody. He raised the dead to show them that what he could do physically, he could do spiritually, and they could have new life in Jesus Christ. He didn't feed the five thousand just because he loathes an empty belly. He fed them to show them that if they would come to him for nourishment, it would be a lasting, satisfying nourishment they would receive. And in your life and mine, the things that God does, and I don't know about you, it'd be a tragedy if this couldn't be said about you. But God works all the time in my life. God does incredible things all the time in my life. And those things are not just done to get me out of, out of jams that I'm in. They're not just done to try to smooth the tracks. They're not just done to try to give me a better experience on this pilgrimage of life. They're given to cultivate holiness and consecration and spirituality in my life. And I don't know about you, but I know in my life there's been many times that I've been guilty of missing the point. What does it look like when we miss the point in our life? Well, I want you to look with me at verse 14. The Bible says this. Now, the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. This here proof positive, whatever denomination they were, it was not Baptist. Amen. (laughs) Here they are and they've carried with them only one loaf of bread. Now, we know there's at least 12 of them. We know then on top of that, there is. The Lord, the master, and they should desire for him to be fed. And then beyond that, they are aware of how quickly their small company can swell to multitudes of thousands. You'd think they would have learned to carry more bread with them. But you see, just prior to this, there had been a miracle that had taken place. They had been out in the wilderness with nothing to feed them. And the Lord Jesus looked. At his disciples and said, what are we going to do? Do you have anything with you? Do you have even a small poultry meal that that can be given? And they brought to him in the feeding of the five thousand five loaves and two fishes in the feeding of the four thousand seven loaves and a few fishes. We don't know exactly how many, but they bring this poultry meal to the Lord Jesus. And he begins to break that and to multiply it and to use it to feed multitudes before. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to guess what their thinking was. I don't think they wanted to go hungry more than anybody else. I don't think that they were ready to suffer hunger and deprivation for the glory of God. I think they brought one loaf because they had seen what Jesus had done with five loaves. I think they brought one loaf because they had seen what He had done with seven loaves. And I think rather than that arresting their attention and causing them to look to Him and lean upon Him, it bred in them an apathy and a carelessness in the way that they were living. I would say this in verse 14. Here's what we see. They're missing the point. And because of that. There is an instructive truth. That was misapplied. They looked at the miracle that Christ had done. And thought that that gave them some license. To carelessness. I can't tell you the times in my life. God's got me out of messes. It's pretty much a daily occurrence. Depending on the scale upon which you want to examine it. If we're not careful, we will allow that to breed in us an attitude of cavalierness about our responsibilities towards the Lord. God never got you out of a mess to get you into another mess. God never saved you from one tragedy just so that you would bumble into the next tragedy. And if you in the grace of God and in the mercy of God and in the goodness of God have somehow grown to believe that your actions and your choices have no consequences because after all, grace will fix it somehow, you have missed the point of what God did in your life. He did not do these things so that you could live in a, in a reckless manner. And to do so is to draw it underfoot the goodness of God and His mercy and patience. See, the fact is what they should have learned in this is not that they could make any mess and cause any problem that they desired, and Christ would bail them out. What they should have learned is this, that He is the Master, that He is glorious, that He is all-powerful, and that they should, just like that little boy had done, they should have brought whatever they had to be at His disposal. Instead of saying, He did a lot with a little, so why bring more? They should have said, He did a lot with a little. Let's see what He can do with a lot, if we'll give it to Him. Should have caused them to say, hey... Let's go all in in making sure that he is provided for. They miss the fact that this little boy, his participation, his humility, his desire for Christ's needs to be met, that was the catalyst. Wanting the bread, he could have turned stones to bread. But it was his willingness to put Christ first that made all the difference. And if they had just simply been willing to see it for what it was, they would have learned it wasn't about allowing them to go first in their desires and needs, but rather it was about putting him first above all else. Very often in Christians' lives, they take the mercy of God and the patience of God as license. Let me tell you something. God didn't call us to... To lasciviousness. He called us unto liberty. And liberty is not license. Liberty is not given so that we can live. And say well who cares what the consequences are. Liberty is given not to get us out from under the law. But because to cause us to live above the law. And it's given to cause us not to walk more loosely. But to walk more closely. And if you think for one moment that the grace of God and his patience and goodness and long suffering in your life is licensed to recklessness, you have missed the point. And it's a symptom of hard heartedness in being unwilling to see what the true purpose was in God's grace and working in your life. There's a big old, and I say it all the time, it's probably not even unfamiliar to you now, but there's a big theological word for this idea, antinomianism, the idea that grace makes us gross, the idea that because of grace I can live any way that I want. Listen, if you've got the grace of God in your life, uh, it doesn't matter whether you could live any way you want, it, it's going to make you live the way that He wants. And in your life, if you think that's what God saved you to, is recklessness and carelessness, you have missed what God's doing in your life. I think they were missing the point because I see an instructive truth that's misapplied. But then I want you to look at verse 15. The Bible says he charged them. Now, remember the context here. The the Pharisees have come up to him and said, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. And Christ says, even if I showed you one, you wouldn't receive it. You're a wicked and adulterous generation. Then he turns to his disciples and says this, take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reason among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. Now, before you laugh, you and I would have probably took it the exact same way. You see, Christ is wanting to teach them a deeper truth in their life. But because of their hard heartedness, they miss the deeper truth and they completely misunderstand what Christ is telling them. See, I don't just see an instructive truth misapplied. I see a protective truth missed altogether. In other words, Christ is trying to caution them against something that can make shipwreck in their life. We're told elsewhere that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. I don't really know what the leaven of Herod. I'm sure that I could give you an answer. I'm sure you could derive a better answer than even mine. But undoubtedly it has to do with carnality and with willfulness. Herod, of course, uh, he killed John the Baptist because he was unwilling to yield to biblical authority. But whatever the purpose in this command and this this caution that's given is, it's apparent that Christ is trying to shield them from something that could wreak havoc in their life. But instead of taking it as the loving, compassionate, cautionous care of the master, they viewed it as, well, he's fussing at me. He's just fussing at me. He's just mad because we didn't bring any more bread. He's just saying this because we forgot the bread. And in that, they miss what God's really doing. I can't tell you the times that in my life, in in spiritual immaturity, God has withheld something from me, and I have sat and in my flesh sulked and thought, well, God just don't want me to have nice things. Well, God's just fussing at me. Well, God's just being unfair to me. Well, God's just trying to keep me from enjoying this life. And yet a clear perspective of Calvary, of the work and ministry of Christ, of the New Testament church dispels all notion that God's ever done anything except what's in our interest and what's for our good. They thought, well, he's just getting on to us and they missed the deeper truth. And how many times, listen, I'll say this as a parent and every parent in this room, no doubt can echo this. How many times have you had to get on to your children and they've looked and just said, well, you're just fussing at me. We're just on to me all the time. We're just giving me a hard time. And you thought to yourself, I'm not trying to hurt you. I don't dislike you. I'm not trying to stop you from enjoying life. To be honest, if I had my way, I wouldn't waste my time trying to instruct you. Instead, you're trying to help them. But they miss the point of it, don't they? They do so because they're resentful. They do so because they're childish. They do so because they're immature. And we do that to God because we're all of those things, too. God's never done anything in your life because he's just sitting up in heaven angry that you're having a good time. What a naive perspective that is of God. What a low opinion we must have of God to think that he allows us to go through suffering and hardship just because he's petty and tyrannical. Hey, listen, the government is. I understand that's why they do things, but God's not that way. He loves you. He wants what's best in your life. We've been talking in Sunday school about the Boy, I mean, time would fail me to really dig in the way I'd want, but how that Christ loves the church as the husband ought to love their wives and how that he uh, loved himself and gave himself for the church and that he loves the church as his own self. In other words, he's never had to choose between what's done for his glory and what's done for our good. He can love himself and love us simultaneously. And the one example when he heaped upon himself shame for our good is Calvary. And it is proof positive that if he did have to choose, he'd do what's good for us. But he doesn't have to choose betwixt those two things. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but God isn't giving you the short end of the stick in life. He's doing what's for his glory and what's for your good. But a hard heart will interpret the caring hand of the father as being that of violence or of abuse or of hatefulness. Man, they were missing the point. I see that there was a protective truth that was missed altogether. But then I want you to look with me at verse 17. When Jesus knew it, because he knows all things, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? He says, Having eyes, see ye not. Having ears, hear ye not. Do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? Say unto him, twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They said, seven. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? What does it look like when our heart is hard? Well, there's an instructive truth that's misapplied. There's a protective truth that's missed altogether. But in these verses, we find that there is a descriptive truth that is misunderstood. Here's what Christ says. Didn't you learn anything about me when you saw me do that? Do you really think when I'm warning you against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? And man, what a picture this is of God's word and its work in our life. He says, when I'm warning you against that, do you really think I'm worried about the bread that you have or don't have? Do you really think I'm so petty and small minded that I'm worried about that? Didn't you learn from those things that I don't need your bread in order to feed you? In other words, he's saying this. You should have learned from that, that I don't do anything in your life because I need you. I do those things because I love you. They should have learned when they saw him do that, that he was a perfect, powerful, piteous God. That loved them and cared about them and never does anything in their life out of self-interest, but only for their good and for His glory. They should have understood that anything He says to them, they need to accept completely at face value as being from the loving mouth of a Father, of a caring Master over His disciples. The real tragedy is this. It's not just what they, what they missed about miracles and it's not just what they missed about The Pharisees, it's what they missed about God. And the great tragedy in our life is that God could pay our bills and and heal our diseases and and fix our marriages and and, and save our kids and and, and give us safety and do all those things and us learn nothing about who He is. Hey, listen, we ought to learn every time God does something in your life, that's a master class on who the Lord is what he cares about what he values what he prioritizes and the things that he instructs in the raising of your family in the leading of your home in, in the in the in the nurturing of your marriage ought to show you the things that he values and the things that he cares about and the things that he values are what you should value and it gives you a a path a manual for how to go through life how to live how to behave and what's important but the real tragedy of a hard heart Is it doesn't learn anything about God. It eats the bread that's been multiplied. It ignores the truth that's been communicated. And it misses the glimpse of God in all of it. I never want to miss the glimpse of God in all of it. I love that God meets my needs. Praise His holy name. But I'm more thankful for what He does in meeting my needs than I am in the meeting of the need. Man, I'm thankful he's blessed me with a wonderful family. And I've got, listen, I've got a wonderful family. But I'm so much more thankful of what that teaches me about who God is. And how he cares about us. And how he's interested in us. And what he has planned for us. Than just in the family I'm I'm blessed to enjoy. And in your heart. The the sooner and so many of us, man, I mean, we're just like hogs. We just keep our eyes straight at our food and just consume and consume and consume without ever looking up towards heaven and thinking about the hand that dispensed it to us. What a tragedy it would be. I mean, listen, the sheep keeps its eyes on the shepherd. The hog never looks up from the slop. What are we living like? We just just one crisis to the next and God answers this and we immediately forget about it and move on from it. God works in this and we immediately forget about it and move on from it and never stopping to learn the truths that God is teaching us. The real tragedy would not be that we missed a meal. The real tragedy would be that we missed a point, that we missed what God's trying to do. I wonder if you would be courageous enough and honest enough to look at even just the very last thing perceptibly, that God has done in your life. The very You don't even have to look at the last ten. I wonder if you'd look at the last thing that you know God did in your life, answering a prayer, meeting a need, safeguarding you against some danger, whatever it is, I wonder if you'd be honest enough tonight to look at that thing and stop and say, now God, what were you teaching me through this and have I learned everything that you have for me from it? Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play and I want you to have an opportunity to do that tonight. To meet the Lord in the altar and to talk to him about whatever that thing is that God has done of recent in your life. And just to make sure that you've done everything that you can to learn, to glean, to gain from it. A clear glimpse of his goodness and of his person. Father, I'm so thankful for how you work in my life. I don't deserve even an ounce of it. But Lord, you're so good to me. And let me never get my eyes on the goodness and miss the good God that's been so good to me. But Lord, help me to value the the gift above the, the giver above the gift, you as my exceeding great reward and my shield, and help me to seek after and pursue after you above all. Bless this invitation, Lord, I love you, and I ask it in Christ's name.